So we pick it up in verse 43 of chapter 5 with the fifth statement from Jesus. You've heard that it was said. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward then have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And that idea of perfect there has mature or complete behind it is the concept, because obviously there's no one that's perfect. So we'll come back to that as we wrap things up tonight. So this is a power-packed segment of Scripture that is very challenging. It's supernatural. It's three-dimensional. It's, 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 we should say, trans-dimensional, because... The sons of Adam and daughters of Eve apart from Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. We can't do this. This is impossible for sinful people who are in bondage to the flesh, the devil, and their lust. It's impossible for us to be this person. But remember the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is surrounded by a multitude. And the people were astonished at what he taught. But he sat down to teach his disciples. He is teaching his followers. And we know the disciples are women and men who have heard the good news of Jesus Christ, they have repented of their sins, they've received Christ, and as Jesus said in John chapter 3, they're born again of the Spirit. So we've been made alive, and we're told that God has given to us all things pertaining to this life and godliness, and though that word man is perishing, the inward man is being renewed, and we know that we overcome, and our faith we overcome, and we overcome by the Spirit within us. So as God gives us a new life, the kingdom life, he gives us the power to live that kingdom life. And this is the distinction, of course, between world religions and human philosophies and the kingdom life. Because world religions and human philosophies are ideas and concepts and ideologies where you're still doomed as a sinner and bondage to sin. The sons of Adam, daughters of Eve. But Christ, being born again of the Holy Spirit, gives us the power to live and fulfill the law. Now, we cover this in Deuteronomy, but as the law of God's written on our hearts by the Spirit of God, we're able to live out the things that God wants us to do by his Holy Spirit. So he's equipped us to do this. If it was just us linear or two-dimensional or black and white, if you will, we would be, we'd just be totally frustrated and exasperated like people with world religions trying to attain to something that they can't attain to. But in our case, as disciples of Christ... When we're told to love your enemies, which is very revolutionary, to say the least, he empowers us to do it. So God's not going to call us to do something he doesn't equip us to do by the power of the Holy Spirit. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. So you've heard that it's said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This idea for the Jews at this time was their concept of their worldview. The Jews loved Jews and they hated anyone that wasn't a Jew. So if you're Jewish, they love you. If you're a Samaritan, they despise you because you're a half-Jew. You're interracial and interreligious. And if you are a Gentile, you are just the worst. Anyone else on the planet was a Gentile. So 1,500 years of being set aside as God's people, people of covenant, they misinterpreted what that all meant because they're supposed to be a light. So like when the Queen of Sheba came to Solomon around 950 B.C. and there was a witness of God's glory to her, that's what Israel was meant to be. 
Yes, they had real enemies, but they're meant to be a light to the Gentiles, and that's why there's so many passages of Scripture about that in the Old Testament that are quoted by us, that are quoted for us by the Holy Spirit in the New Testament as the gospel went forth. Because when Jesus said that the good news of Jesus, who he is, was for preach it to every creature, to all nations, it is for all nations. And the book of Acts is the record of where they get past love your friends, hate your enemies. They have to get past that. So the first conflict is over dialect and, and, and customs. They have a dispute within the church in chapter 6 over two groups of believers that are both Jewish, the Hellenist Greek-speaking Jews and the Aramaic-speaking Jews. So they, the one group has hillbilly accents, if you will, and the other has white-collar accents, if you will. And there's a dispute over the distribution of food for widows. Then, through the persecution through Saul, who became Paul the Apostle later, they get out in Samaria, and they have to deal with their racism and their, their attitudes against the Samaritans. And that wall has to come down. Then from there, Peter has to defend that after that when they go to the house of Cornelius. And then Cornelius and the Romans and the Gentiles hear the good news. They receive the Holy Spirit. They're baptized. Then Peter and John and the rest have to defend that in Acts chapter 15. And then finally, they all agree that there's one body of Christ in all that diversity Summarized by Paul, there's neither male nor female, rich nor poor, Jew nor Scythian or, or Gentile. But the gospel's for everybody. But when Jesus says this on the Sermon on the Mount, if we're sitting there as followers of Jesus with a Jewish background, we're going like, of course we hate our enemies. I hate the Romans. I hate the Syrians. I hate the Babylonians. I hate anyone that lives. I can't stand the Lebanese that live across Sudan right there in Tyre. These are long-standing hatreds. If you study world history, they exist everywhere. European history is fascinating to study because you realize like the Poles and the Czechs and, and all the Slavic people and the Romanians and Bulgarians and the Turks and the Russians and the Mongols and the Kazakhstanis, Turzakistanis, they've been going at this for thousands of years. And there's just these centuries of hatred. So when you say to anyone, you shall love your friends and hate your enemies, it's not hard to think about who you would hate. Some, some women absolutely hate men no matter what. Some men absolutely hate women no matter what. And some people hate other races no matter what you do. Some people hate you because you're white. Some people hate you because you're black. Some people hate you because you're Asian or South Pacific. Some people hate you because you're Chinese. Some people hate you because you're Filipino. Like people hate on those bases. Pastor Chuck used to say people hate him because he wasn't good looking. <laughs> he literally said that. He goes, I get extra hate because, you know, and all. And I was like, wow, I never even thought of that. And he goes, he goes but don't worry because some people hate you because you are good looking. <laughs> some people just don't like us. And when this is said in the context, he said, you'll love your enemies and hate. You'll love your friends, your people, and your neighbor, and you'll hate your enemies. Everyone's sitting there going like, well, yeah, it's just the way it is. But we know the 12 apostles who are all Jewish couldn't get along amongst themselves. The four brothers in the fishing business couldn't get along amongst themselves. This is the human experience. We essentially want the universe to revolve around us. And the farther we get out of our orbit, the more likely we'll have division and discord with other people. So in the context, the Jews are together, and anyone's not a Jew is an enemy, but even in the religious world of the Jews, the Sadducees and the Pharisees hate each other, they have different worldviews, and this is the way it is. That's our background to this. It gives us good insight to understand this, and it just keeps 
going this way. There's nothing new under the sun. So there's, we can have enemies for all kinds of different reasons. We have enemies, you have family feuds that go back through centuries, and ethnic feuds, of course, like the, the Muslims and the Serbs, the Croats and the Serbs and stuff like that. All this stuff goes on forever. Like, it's been going on forever. And then you can have feuds within the family, like parts of the family don't speak to each other because when the estate was settled, it didn't go the way someone thought it would, and someone hates you because you were in the trust and they weren't. And that's just the way it went. So when we look at this statement, you've heard that it said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. It's basically saying you'll love your homies and you'll hate anyone who's not. That's what it's saying. And anyone in any audience in human history in the last 2,000 years can relate to this one. But we have enemies. There are some people that just don't like you and they don't like me and you can't change that. Ben Corson, who we all love, John Corson's kid. Ben, he said something, I think it was on TBN or Good Morning America or something, that got my attention. He talked about with his hope generation that he said statistics show that 25% of the people that you know love you and are loyal to you no matter what. 25% of the people that you know hate you and nothing's going to change your opinion. And then there's another 25% that are never going to care either way. And the last 25% is who you can win to whatever it is that you're selling or sharing or proclaiming or lose them. And really, if you think about politics, it's like 40, 40, and a 20 in the middle, and every election is trying to win that 20 in the middle. It makes sense. So there's going to always be people, no matter what, are never going to like you. In other words, haters are going to hate. So we've got to get past that and realize we're not going to change them from hating us. But what can change is our heart in loving them. You've heard that it said you will love your neighbor but hate your enemies. So we don't want to give someone a reason that we're their enemy. We don't want to be openly someone's enemy. Christ on the cross is Christ for people. Now, he'll call people to repent, and they don't like that, so they crucify him. But he's for them. What did he say to those who crucified him? Father, forgive them, they know what they're doing. So that's Christ for humanity. The son didn't come. God so loved the world that gave his son. So God is for people. So we never want to be the initiator of, I'm your enemy and I'm out to get you. Nonetheless, no matter what we do, with or without Christ, there are people who are going to not like us, and they might really hate us for whatever reason. We could be their enemy. When we went to England years ago, I was in a sports department store, and I bought a Liverpool soccer shirt, a nice one, like a Nike, really nice. I thought, I just like the way it looked. I'm like, on American tourists, it's really cool. It's black and yellow. It's, a cool, it's Liverpool. It's cool. I'm with my boys. We're just, it's, our, it's our tourist day after the, all the event at Creation Fest. I was walking through London for the next five hours with a Liverpool soccer shirt on. Let me tell you, there are people that I thought were going to kill me. There are people that I thought were going to kill me. Like, I was like, oh, my goodness. Like, that, just the identity. And Jesus even says in this passage, you're persecuted. You'd be persecuted for him. We already saw that early on in chapter 5. So people just hate you because you're wearing a Liverpool sweatshirt. I mean, you could... You go to surf contests, people don't like you because we're in Hurley when they're sponsored by Billabong or something. Like, it's just, that's just the way it works. So we don't ever want to be the ones giving the vibe of hate, but inevitably in the human experience, you're going to receive the vibe of hate for whatever reason. It's going to happen. 
So this is how we deal with that as followers of Christ, particularly in the context of even being persecuted or hated because we're identified with Jesus. But it doesn't have to be that. But it's for the disciples. So he said there's four things initially that we're called to do. I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So you'll notice there's a diversity of the actions here. So on one hand, love your enemies or to love. Now, when Woodrow Wilson was trying to negotiate or prevent World War I between the Germans and the British and the French and Russia and the alliances, he, he's out there with filial love. He's trying to bring the Prussians and the Brits together and the French and all this stuff, you know, centuries and centuries of wars and stuff. Didn't work. When, all, when the whole world was just completely destroyed three years later, there he is again in 1918. He's trying to bring the world together. Eventually it was the League of Nations, which would become, of course, the UN. And he's trying to bring enemies together with phileo love. Phileo. Like, that's why we get the word philanthropist from that. It's the idea that, you know, you do good for humanity. You're, you're a do-gooder for humanity, but you're not a do-gooder for humanity because of Christ and that thing. It's more like when people have billions of dollars and they give away millions of dollars and say they're philanthropist. That's what that's like. Like, and philanthropy, for some people, can be world population containment with funding global abortions. In their mind, that's philanthropy. Philanthropy for others can be Mother Teresa taking care of lepers in Calcutta for 50 years. That's a pretty broad definition for philanthropy. But it's the idea of phileo, brotherly love, from which we get the word for Philadelphia, the city of Philadelphia. It's like brotherly love of humanity is the idea. But that's not the love here. This is the agape love. So I'm grateful that we're not left to try and love people like global corporations and their philanthropy in 2021, whatever that looks like. We don't need all the money of billionaires and oligarchs. We only need our faith and to be led by the Spirit every day and how we interact with other human beings in our circle of life. And we all have that. We need the agape love that Christ gives us. We're called to love our enemies. So we're not Woodrow Wilson and the League of Nations trying to get the Germans and the Brits and the French and the Russians and everyone, Italians, to settle it down. That's not what we're trying to do here. Let the world figure out their stuff. Ours is the kingdom. Remember, ours is the kingdom. Theirs is two-dimensional. Ours is multi-dimensional because we're spirit-filled and we're surrounded by the angels and so great, so great a cloud of witnesses and angels are ministering and spirits sent to those who are, are saved by grace. Ours is a much broader universe. It's multi-dimensional. Ours is the eternal kingdom. So we're called to love our enemies. We can't love our enemies the way God wants us to. But we're told in Romans chapter 5 that through the Holy Spirit, the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. So going back to Galatians 5, if the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, that as we're abiding in Christ, as we're a Spirit-filled woman and a Spirit-filled man, God's love is working. God's love is at work. And that phileo love of Woodrow Wilson has its limits. No matter how much you love humanity, it has its limits. We need the love of the cross, the agape love, the supernatural love of the Holy Spirit producing Christ in us to love our enemies. So isn't it good to know that we're not like 
the French trying to forgive the Germans or the Belgians trying to forgive the Germans for what they did to their property and all their cities and the, million, the hundreds of thousands of innocent people they killed in World War I? Aren't you glad that we're not trying to do that as philanthropists? Forgive them for burning our homes, taking our livestock and everything, shooting our relatives in the city square? Like, aren't you glad you weren't Belgium in 1915 and 16? Because you're a philanthropist, how do you forgive them? If your filial love is all you have to forgive the Germans, the Huns, for what they did, how's that going to work? But if you're born again and you're a disciple of Jesus Christ and you have agape love, the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So now we're like Dietrich Bonhoeffer in World War II when he's going to be hung and he loves and forgives the German. He was a German that loved Germany and he was hung because he's part of the Valkyrie and the conspiracy to kill Hitler. It was a lesser of two evils in their world to try and stop the madness. But he taught a Bible study from Isaiah and they hung him just a few weeks before the war was over, before the U.S., the Soviets, and Americans came on Berlin. But he loved and forgave those, those Nazis and what they did to him. See, that's not phileo. That's agape. That's how we do this. That's how we roll. We're the kingdom. We're not Woodrow Wilson trying to fix the world. We're disciples of Jesus Christ with the power of heaven to forgive our enemies. There's, there's a limit to what Woodrow Wilson can do with the League of Nations. There's no limit to what Christ can do through us in forgiving our enemies. For the love of God is without boundary and without limit, and it's been, he's been shed abroad in our hearts. So all we have to do is abide in Christ, and that will come forth as we look at our enemies. So we love our enemies. We bless those who curse us. It's always hard when people curse you. It's just the way it is. But sometimes you get cursed just even when you're trying to follow and obey the rules and be the best person at work. You still get cursed. And you're the fall, you're the scapegoat, like Jesus is the scapegoat. And you get cursed. And sometimes no matter how good of a job you do, you're like Cinderella. It's never good enough for the stepmom and the stepsisters because they hate you. So you get cursed. The people curse you and they, they curse you for this and they curse you for that. You get cursed. And when people say words that curse you, that's very, that's hard. Sometimes they curse you behind your back. Sometimes you don't even know why, what they're cursing you for. You know, being in ministry where you do weddings and, and funerals, you, I can't tell you how many times people can't come to the wedding together because they curse each other. And there's so much hardness of heart. And you curse people long enough, you, you bring curses on everybody. On yourself, most of all. Because Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. But those who sow discord, the Lord hates. Let me say that again. In Proverbs, it says seven things, six things, seven the Lord hates. One of them is those who sow discord among brethren. But Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. So if there's any cursing going on, don't let it be you. Let it be someone against you. And they might just curse you because you're a follower of Christ. They might curse you because they don't like you. But what are you going to do? Some might curse you because you've got the position, and they don't. It's that simple. Then in high school, you get to go to the prom with the quarterback or the senior or the, the handsome guy, or you get the bella to the ball, and, and people curse you and hate you, and all the slander goes against you because, just because that was you. You're a princess the junior year, and they weren't. And they've hated you since third grade. Right there in MCA, it's been building, 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 and here it is your junior year. Let it rip. 
It's all out in the open now. We're just getting ready for adulthood. Right? Don't be the cursor. It says, bless them. So you got to kind of get Pentecostal here. Father, I'm pronouncing a blessing upon them. I want you to bless them, Father. Amen. I want you to bless them. I want you to bless them in Jesus' name. That's what we do. You know, John Corson's a big blessing person, if you know John Corson. Ho, 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 ho. Bless you, Joey. Bless your rabbit. He lived in our neighborhood when we first moved to Coast Mesa 20 years ago. I've told you this. He'd walk through our neighborhood with his bare feet and his Bible and a cup of coffee. And he'd come down our street. To, he'd be like, oh, Lord, bless Joey. Bless him, Lord. And he'd just go through the neighborhood pronouncing blessings. I'm like, <laughs> right? Be a blesser. When they curse you, bless them. When, people, when you curse people, there's no good thing that's going to come of it for your life. You're killing yourself. You're killing yourself from within because God will never honor that. Which brings us to the third thing. Do good to those who hate you. So we need to do good. So now we've, we love unconditionally. We, we bless when we're cursed. Bless them, Lord. Bless them. Work through it. Bless them. And then do good. So now we have actions, okay? So the disposition is to love unconditionally your enemies. And then it's to speak blessings upon them. And then it's to do good. Now we have action. So like you're like at work and you're like in the fire firehouse and this guy's just riding you, riding you, riding you and just sowing discord against you from you with other people because you go to Calvary Chapel or Vineyard or whatever and they just don't like Christians and you're evil and you know, you're an extremist and the whole world's wrecked because of you and they're just going to ruin you in the fire department. That's what they want to do. That's who they are. That's just the way they are. The police department, whatever it is, wherever you work, at the PTA, in the school, the local elementary school in Costa Mesa, that's what they're doing. And you work with them every day. And what you need to do is do good for them. Do good for them. When they're about to get blindsided, pick up the blindside block and lay a block for them. Do good for them. See, if we're linear and we're the French and the Germans (laughs) at the League of Nations trying to resolve this war that never was resolved at that time, we're already plotting what we're going to do to get even. We're Woodrow Wilson trying to bring world peace to these people. But if we're disciples of Jesus Christ, we're, we're rebuilding the villages that were destroyed. Which is what America did, actually, too, by the way. What a great country, you know? We go in and build and clean up things that other people destroy. That's the history of America. But we do good. We do good. There's action. So listen very carefully. This is the Sermon on the Mount. This is loving our enemies. This is action. Doing good is action. Doing good involves time. It involves energy. It involves vision to take the initiative and do it. To do good. The Lord can guide us what that is. Family disputes, work disputes, community disputes, national disputes. To do good. 
And then the fourth thing is, so we get the action. So we have the disposition of love. We have the words of bless. We pronounce blessings. Then we have the action of doing good. And the ultimate thing is we pray for those who spitefully use us. It really is like Cinderella praying for her stepmother in Cinderella and her stepsisters. We pray for those who spitefully use us and persecute us. Now, again, the context most likely is persecution for Jesus' namesake, but we can be persecuted for righteousness' sake. There can be people where you work, if they just know that you're pro-life and you think it's a good idea to save babies, they'll hate your guts. They will hate your guts. And I think it's a really good thing for government to abort babies and they'll hate your guts because you're opposed to that. And you know what? You're not going to change their thinking. Not linear, not Woodrow Wilson with the Huns or the French. But what you're going to do is you're going to pray for them. That's what we're going to do. We're going to pray for them. We're going to pray for them and we're going to move mountains of deceit and hardness from their hearts. I say it fairly often. The first book I read as a Christian was Effective Prayer Life, Pastor Chubb, 1987. And I took it at face value where he said, you can change the world from your prayer closet. And all I ever prayed for was good surf, thanking for food, and hoping I win. <laughs> Those are good prayers. <laughs> Surf's good, I win. <laughs> Thanks for the tacos, you know. Like, it was a pretty, pretty simple worldview. But as I was going in my faith, obviously it got much more expanded than that. And that's what we do. We're, we pray for things all over the world. We pray in our community, we pray for the world. And that's where we change things. We do pray for our government officials. And the more you can pray for those that are over us that we disagree with, the more likely we'll have empathy on them and their positions and what they're called to do. And you think, well, they... Because you're probably like me, and your initial thought is, they brought it on themselves. Like, you know, we do this with people at work. We do this with people in our family. Well, you know, that's... That's my sibling, and that's what they do. They brought it on themselves. They brought this on themselves. Or, you know, the boss, like, we tried to reason with him. He would not let a dissenting opinion exist. He was cancel culture in the workplace. We tried to stop him, and he brought this on himself, and now we're all without a job. Right? Like, this, we, we, we think like that. So when people have train wrecked their life or some evil comes upon them, because if you sow to the flesh, you reap corruption, and you see it, and you think, well, you brought it on yourself. That is the first thought, I think, that we get a lot of times. So you open casinos and you shut churches and you get recalled. Well, then, you know, like you, my thought is you brought it on yourself. That's what you, you know, like that's what you're fighting God. But if you pray for those people, then you realize, you know, they're still people. And that's their whole world. That's their whole identity. And they're being publicly humiliated. And you say, well, they brought it on themselves. Yeah, but I never like public humiliation. Do you like public humiliation? Some people don't even do any social media because they just like... They don't want to be seen, right? Like, like, like it's like Lucas Timmerman gave me a book, How to Disappear, because he's a private investigator. He has he goes deep web, dark web access. He works government high high level access, and he gave me the book, How to Disappear. When we had check fraud, card fraud, bank fraud, we had all this stuff come against us. And he gave me this book, like here's how to disappear, like just aliases and all this stuff. But I'm not going to disappear. 
You can burn me at the stake, but I'm not going to disappear. I'm not going to disappear until I'm out of here. But you understand that because you're a target. We need to pray for people and see them the way God sees them. And when someone really is against you or your worldview or what you stand for, that's all the more important at that time that you really pour on the prayers and pray for people. Do you ever, when you look at Jesus and his interactions with people, whether it's the religious leaders, Caiaphas, the high priest, or Judas, or any of them, Zacchaeus in the tree, you, you get the feeling that he, he just really could see them who they were, like see into their soul. That's why I like the, t- the TV show The Chosen. Even though it takes like liberties on like, you know, speculative things, I like the concept that Jesus just looks at people and just like, well, Peter, like he's just looking right through you. And Jesus looked right through everybody. Because it, it says in the New Testament, and he knowing their heart said, what's this easier to do? To say, your sins are forgiven or pick up your bed and walk. He knowing the thoughts of their hearts. So we pray, and that's how we work through it. And we've talked about this with forgiveness. Just when you forgive these people for this thing, there is a new thing. It's like the video game. There's just layers, and it's a new level of a video game. A new level to forgive people at. But the grace of God's always there. And it's all the more we need to pray. We need to pray and pray for those people and let that go. There, there can be things that are so ugly at work and so ugly with family when you get older. The ugliest things imaginable. And you have to just get on your knees and pray for people who come against you. You have to labor for them in prayer. And fight the good fight for them. And the rewards will be in heaven. And you might not change them at all in time. You may never see them change in time. But how could any prayer in Jesus' name to the benefit of someone else that's persecuting you to pray for them, how could that ever not be good fruit for eternity? Of course it's good fruit for eternity. It's good fruit for your soul too. Because who wants to be in assisted living or health care, you know, like the mental stuff and be filled with bitterness? At 60, that's my worst fear, is to be a little fuzzy at 90 and have bitterness in my heart toward anybody or anything. That, that's just, that's a, that's a bad, that's just, I, I don't want to, boo, man, avoid that. Forgive them now. Pray for them now. Let it go. Move forward. Yeah, there's a new thing. Pray about it. Forgive it. This is the Sermon on the Mount. So we see these big four. Love your enemies. Bless. Do good. And pray. And again, one's a disposition. One is word spoken, one is action lived, but the other one is moving things in the eternal and spiritual realm. That's what prayer is doing. You're fighting a spiritual battle with spiritual weapons when we're praying. That's what we're doing. So the prayer really kind of seals everything else because you pronounce the blessings and you do good, but it's the prayer that really brings the supernatural power behind what we're doing in Jesus' name to be his disciples in that situation. These are the words of Jesus. And he said in doing so, In doing these four things, you may be sons of your Father in heaven. And then he said in verse 48, you shall be perfect or mature and complete as your Father in heaven. So notice, this is kingdom culture. There's the culture of Adam and Eve and humanity and phileo and all that, this linear thing. But this is kingdom culture. This is higher. This is deeper. This is multidimensional because it's the Father in heaven. So when we think about adoption, and we have had many 
There are many adopted kids that have been a part of this church in 16 years, for sure. I've been to when Nathan Frisbee became a member of the Frisbee family, and he became Frisbee in his last name, Nathan, who you see here. I went to that proceeding at the Orange County Courthouse. I'll never forget it. And it was legal and binding, and it's like they had fostered him for a while, and but I was there. I watched it happen legally. This son, this beautiful kid that we see around here all the time after service, we've watched him grow up in the last five, six years here. I was there when he was adopted into the Frisbee family. And he went from a culture of what his life was before then to the culture of the Frisbee family with Garrett and Jacqueline. And then other adopted children came in, and he has the, the sisters, Haley and Jade, this is his family. He became part of this family. And he has a father, Garrett Frisbee, who's, of course, a great father. And this is the family. That's us. Because Romans 8 tells us when we give our life to Christ, we've passed from death to life, and we've been adopted into the family. And we become joint heirs with Christ. So it's like we're Nathan... And God is the father in the courtroom, and we're now into the family. We're adopted, and then we become joint heirs. And so the trust and the estate and the will, it's all there. And Nathan comes in fully into that, and we come fully into that because we're now fully in the trust and in the estate. Because Romans 8 tells us that we are joint heirs with Christ of all the riches and glories of all the next dimension. So we've gone from outside the covenant, outside the family, outside the kingdom, to we're in the kingdom, we're disciples, and now we're in the heavenly trust, the heavenly estate, the heavenly estate, and our heavenly father is over that, and father knows best. And now we have a new culture. We don't have the culture of Adam, we have the culture of second Adam, Jesus Christ. We don't have the culture of Eve, we have the culture of the daughters of the king. That's what we have. And this, this house, in my father's house are many mansions, if not so I would have told you, John 14, there's a culture. When people come to visit you and stay at your house overnight for a couple days, they, they get a feel for your family or how you do things. This is how we roll. This is the culture. This is the family. This is the tribe. Ours is the heavenly tribe. And this is the character of the Father. This is the Father because Jesus always does those things that please the Father and he has revealed to us the will of the Father. So what we just read, these four things, we're equipped to do and we're called to do because we don't live in the other house with the other family. We live in the king's family. We're the kingdom. Our citizenship's in heaven. We're ambassadors of Christ and we are children of our heavenly father. We're joint heirs with Christ. So there's a higher expectation. In studying all the European monarchies, it's just so fascinating to me how you, know, you get these heirs and you teach them French and Russian and English and Prussian and all these languages. You, you teach them musical instruments, you know, art, poetry, all these things. And you, they would, these, these sons, these grandsons that would become heirs, whether it was the, you know, the Prussian kings like Frederick the Great or Louis the Sun King in France and the successor kings before the French Revolution or all those kings and queens of England, you would, you would, be, you would be, I mean, Queen Victoria had all those grandkids and they're all cultured and they were raised certain ways with a certain culture to lead and how you carry yourself. 
the etiquette, diplomacy, tolerance, these sorts of things. That's what you did. I love watching movies about Asia because most Asian cultures are very family-oriented and the respect of the family is critical. Like, you're of the Fa family. This has been, you know, like Mulan is the Fa family, right? Like, if you know Mulan. And, but whether it's Korean or, or, or Chinese or Japanese, it's, you know, this has been the family business for 400 years. And you are in the family. And this is the way we've conducted ourselves in Osaka, in Yokohama. This is how it is. There's a culture. Now, some cultures aren't that strong and don't have that kind of identity or aren't proud of that. But in Asian culture, obviously, it's very strong that way. So as I look at this, what Jesus is saying is that we are sons of the Father, sons and daughters of the Father in heaven. Ours is a different culture. We're, we're being, really, we're like the, the, the princes and princesses of those great monarchs of time past. Because we're told we're going to rule and reign with Christ. So even now, as we obey the Lord and show discipleship and fulfill the Great Commission and let Christ work in us the hope of glory, we are being prepared to rule and reign with Christ for all eternity. That's what we're going to do. So we're like little monarchs. We're like little heirs to the throne being trained by the Holy Spirit with these four things to be prepared to rule and reign in eternity. And we might not lack 16 hours of education like Prince William didn't like or... Prince Peter, when he, before he was Peter the Great. But you still got to get it. Because someday you are going to rule and reign all of Russia, or all of Prussia, or Queen Victoria, all of England, or William the Kaiser, all of Germany. And so God is preparing us to be the character of the culture for when that day comes in the, in the dimension of eternity. So we got to get it right now. This is because he says, we are children of the Father. And then he says to be complete like the Father. We represent the Father. That's that diplomacy. That's that ambassador. We represent that kingdom. We're the kingdom culture. And we represent it. So if we're just like a tax collector or a ballroom brawler or whatever you want to say for verses 46 and 47. Because I close with this thought. For if you love those who love you, well, what's that to you? If you only love Team USA and everyone else is part of Team USA, what's that to you? Of course everyone loves Team USA. It's the Olympics and the USA is winning gold medals. If you only love who you love because you have something common phileo with them, what good is that to you? What word, what word do you have? Don't even tax collectors do the same? People are tribal. They, they form tribes. In prison, in homelessness, they form tribes. Lepers form tribes. If you greet only your brethren, what, what's that to you? Do not even tax collectors do so? See, the key thought is your father in heaven is complete. Therefore, you shall be complete as your father in heaven is complete. But think of yourself as a princess and a prince being prepared for the kingdom. Because this is kingdom character. This is kingdom culture. And if we're just going to live a, a, a linear, mundane life apart from faith in Christ... This wouldn't apply to us. But ours is the greatest calling in the universe. Disciples of Jesus Christ.